From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this, this week with Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner, longtime co-hosts. Shane Jensen, our fourth musketeer, is out today. He will be back. Some combination of us are here almost every week of the year, and we're delighted to be. We're coming to you via Zoom, as we are most of the time since the pandemic hit and scattered us far and wide. We are going to come up on a stretch this spring where we're going to have a whole bunch of them in the studio. I'm already looking forward to that. It's just a few weeks away now. It is Tuesday afternoon. We're recording in our usual slot. The show will go up Wednesday morning. It'll run a few times on SiriusXM. We'll get the podcast up on Wednesday as well. We have our usual format this week. We're going to have interviews in quarters two and three. We've got Ravi Ramanini in quarter two, longtime soccer analyst, frequent friend of the show, and a fantastic guy to talk to about sports analytics anytime you get a chance to. And then we've got Ethan Strauss, a writer, formerly of The Athletic, now on his own sub on his own Substack, big big following Ethan's got, and he had a provocative article out on the Super Bowl Super Bowl Sunday just a week and a half ago. We're going to open Q one, guys, as we usually do. Just find out what caught your eye. A lot of things going on in sports um, mid season on some of the biggies, some interesting tournaments on some of the on the, some of the lesser sports. I'm curious around all of these things. We'll save baseball. We'll do baseball in Q four, but everything else is game. What caught your eye recently in the world of sports? I think the thing I spent the most time on this past weekend watching was golf. Um, It was Tiger's first tournament since the British Open. And so um, it had been, you know, almost six months since he had played. It was the Genesis Open. He's the host of the tournament. It's played out of uh, Torrey Pines. No, Um, no, no. Uh, Riviera. Sorry, Riviera. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, in LA. Riviera, not Torrey Pines. Riviera. And... I mean, there's good news and bad news. So let me start with the good news. He um, made the cut. He made the cut. That's the good news. And he had one really good round, round three, where he shot 67. Um, he was fourth in driving distance. He, Jeez. Is that no, right? no, I mean, he can still bomb the ball. His, I mean, his average drive, I think, in round four, three, was something like 320 yards. He was hitting the ball really far. But I will say, you know, he still look. He just looks like a rusty golfer. You know, his iron play, the ones the Tiger used to hit 10 to 12 feet away would be 25 to 30 feet. Uh, putts that he would make with guarantee, he'd make maybe half the putts he should have made. Um, his short game was good, but not great. And at the end of the day, you know, and this is my, and this is why I say good news, bad news for me, who's a Tiger fan. Um, he was 16 shots behind the winner, John Rahm. Now, John Rahm's hot. Now, let me just say, everyone's behind John Rahm yeah. right now. Yeah. He's won five out of his last nine tournaments. But here's the way I view it. And, you know, at one of these days, I'll, I'd love to on air talk to your business partner, Rufus Peabody, about this. I mean, that's four shots around. But yeah. if it's not John Rahm this week, it's Justin Thomas next week. It's Roy McElroy the week after. It's, you know, it's some other Jordan Spieth the week after that. Max Homa's actually had a great season who ended up second in the tournament. 100%. 100%. So my concern isn't so much that he's 16 shots behind John Rahm. 
It's just that he's eight to 10 shots behind a ton of players. And how is he going to get eight to 10 shots better than each of those players where it just takes one of them to beat him? So I'm now convinced I don't see a scenario where he wins another tournament. I just don't because there's just too many. Could he end up in the top 20? Yeah. Matter of fact, he was two or three shots out of the top 20 of this one. But do I see him being the best player doing it for four rounds in a given week? I just don't. I, I just don't see it happening in any given week right now. Mm-hmm. Well, when you think about how hard it is to win, even for the guys, you know, at near the top of their game, it's just, as you say, so competitive. I love the way you said it, Eric. It's often the case when we think about how far guys are back in a given tournament. That's one of the inputs to the model. The other is how many guys are there between you and that one? And sometimes it's nobody. And sometimes it's, you know, a bunch of folks and he's got a bunch of folks between him and the top of the field. Yeah. And also right now, I mean, you know, um, John Rahm is playing, he's on one of those heaters, you know, you know, he's, he's won, he's has three wins already this calendar year, but literally of his last nine starts worldwide, he's won five of them. The other three or four, he was in the top 10. Um, he's playing phenomenal golf. Uh, you know, Scotty Scheffler just won the week before, um, you know, this is an exciting, even though Tiger, I think Tiger's going to play all the majors. He will play all the majors, uh, assuming he's healthy enough. I think this is an amazing golf season upcoming. John Rahm is playing well. Scheffler's playing well. Max Homa's playing well. Roy uh, McIlroy's playing well. Let me jump in real quickly with some with some observations from Data Golf. So datagolf.com is a terrific site for poking around and seeing how these guys stack up quantitatively. And this heater you're talking about, you know, it's a it's a wonderful site for seeing these heaters in golf because it's one of the places we know it's momentum is is most real, or it's not so much momentum as much as regime shifts. Guys do get hot, yeah. and and recent performance is predictive of future performance, at least probabilistically. And you can see it in their data. You watch where these guys are, like above the field, and Rom, you know, over his career has been. Uh, right, you know, as an average, maybe two strokes against the field, which is fabulous. But then sometimes it ticks up. And at the very best, you know, late 21, he is at four strokes. And he just is this mountain that rises over a six month period of time where he's just above his already high level of play. Well, he has started another one of those mountains beginning with the PGA championship last year. He has been steadily climbing up from his usual high level of two strokes better than the field to performing three, three and a half, four. And right now he's right around four strokes better than the field in the last few tournaments, or at least the the moving average over the last 25 rounds. So it's definitely one of these regimes that we see happening golf. Rom is hitting it and it's, 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 it's besting his already high average performance. I think the thing that impressed me the most about his performance on Sunday was that he started with a three-stroke lead. And I think it was either the 12th or 13th hole. He was actually one stroke behind. And then he turned on the serious, you know, then then he got real serious. And then he birdied this hole. He had a 45-foot putt. He almost hit a hole in one on the 16th. He basically hit it within two feet of the hole. Like his last five holes were like, this is this guy can just, you know, say, look, I'm going to hit. I'm going to play two or three under these last five. Someone beats me. So what? But the fact that he went from a three shot lead to trailing by one to then end up winning by two or three strokes. 
was yeah. just incredible to me. I mean, yeah. this it, it's going to be an incredible golf season. So I, that's what I spent. That's what caught my eye the most. I was thrilled that Tiger made the cut. I was thrilled for one day. And by the way, when Tiger shot 67 on Saturday, I literally think it was the worst he could have shot. Like he could have shot 63 or 64 okay. easily, okay. easily. Okay. I think he made, I mean, if you don't, if you count the fringe as the green, which they technically don't, I think Tiger Woods had 18 greens in regulation. Oh, good Lord. That's amazing. No, no, no. Especially I mean, given was, you, you were already saying he's hitting the ball long off the tee. You don't expect to match that with, with greens and regulation. I guess it goes together. If you're long off the tee, it's easier to make it, but that's saying something about accuracy as well. It was, but unfortunately his putter wasn't that great, but either way, do I see him contending again in a tournament? I don't know, but either way it, it, it golf's in a good place. Well, no kidding. After the, after the, the waste management tournament in Phoenix, which was great. And then this great tournament at Riviera, they're off to a great start. I want to run down actually Adi's trying to jump in here. Adi. Yeah. I just want to, I did a little research on, uh, golf uh, this past year and putting while extremely important to winning, obviously is also the most random um, meaning that if, if, if Tiger didn't have a good putt, that not silly meaning and then going forward. Right. So that might mean better things for him in the future. Um, if he was driving long and doing other things decently well. So that's just yeah, he actually talks. He actually talked in his post interviews about even round to round variation, Adi in getting yeah. the speed and the feel of the greens. Uh-huh. And so he he at least believes that he could putt at, for Tiger, average one day, and great the next. I don't think he feels that, like, for example, if he's not putting well on a Saturday in a tournament, doesn't mean he's not going to make a bunch of bombs on Sunday. I think he thinks he can. And I think he thinks that there really is day-to-day variation, but not maybe as much hole-to-hole variation as people think. So it strikes me for the first time that, in in theory, what we need is a, a more fundamental measure of putting performance than than putts made, because that's what Adi's saying is like, yeah, it's hugely determinative of who wins a tournament, but it's not predictive out of sample. It makes a lot of sense. And we've heard that and we've heard that before. OK, so what is a more fundamental? What's a process measure? What's a well, more fundamental scary. measure? That's the standard one. The standard one that uh, is the strokes gain. So I'm not sure. I I don't. Yeah, I don't even mean that because that's that's still going to bounce around. I'm talking about independent of whether it goes in the hole. Other measure of a putt performance. So it's probably distance or line. I don't. You know, Scott Fawcett would tell us. I forget which one is of those is more important. But you've got two other measures of a putt's performance, right? Like was it online, and then how close was it from a in terms of distance and maybe those are more fundamental measures that are more persistent. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, it's like a guy who's, you know, he's other noisy, you know, you can throw, you you can hit the ball well, but you hit it right at a shortstop and that's not going to count as a hit. So basically what you're saying was you want to remove some of the randomness and especially making a putt and just we'll, we'll we'll value the quality of the putt almost with a little bit of, of uh, tolerance for noise. Uh, exactly. How do we evaluate the putts independent of whether they go not in? Just miss or, really it's not just miss or not, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a um, feeling that most professional golfers, just to maybe wrap up golf, would say that distance control is what matters the most. And I would say that that's probably what they think, is that when they miss putts, 
it's not so much they misread it, they misread the speed of the greens. And then they hit it online, but then it veers off because it, it either is, you know, a couple feet short or usually when they're missing, they're missing short or they're missing on what they call the low side. There's never a golfer that will complain if they miss it on the high side of the hole. They miss it on the low side, which means it broke in front of the hole. That upsets them, not the high side. Well, we need to we need to talk to Fawcett again about this because he's definitely done some thinking on it, and I, I'm ashamed that I don't quite remember. But but I'm not ready to leave golf. A couple last things you talked about the field; it is shaping up to be a good one. Let's just do a rundown real quickly. Data Golf's top rankings. This is their predictive model. Something that's interesting. Just a few weeks ago, Rom and McElroy were right on top of each other. I mean, they had basically the same score versus the field. They're both around plus two and a half. Now Rom has pulled out to about a almost a half point lead over McElroy. McElroy still second. Scheffler, winner in Phoenix, right? Third. Patrick Cantlay, Con- Con- fourth. Tony Finau, fifth. Xander Chauflay, sixth. Max Homa, one of the risers at, what is that, eighth, seventh, seventh? Will Zalatoris, we haven't heard as much. Will had that crazy run last year through the majors, the final group, whatever, three out of four, something crazy like that. Eighth. Justin Thomas, ninth. Colin Morikawa rounding out. What do you think the stroke difference is from the first John Rahm almost plus three to the tenth Colin Morikawa? Point one and a half strokes, one and a quarter. Um, Colin Morikawa is plus one point seven four. So, bef- one last thing on golf: Have y'all seen the the documentary that they kind of do an F one style documentary on golf called Full Swing? It just dropped, I think, in the last couple of weeks. It's a lot of fun. I saw some good traffic on it, so I went ahead and indulged the first episode which focused on Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth, which was a lot of fun. So it's all this behind-the-scenes stuff on the PGA Tour. You know how the, the F1 just took off. It feels like they, it blew up the popularity of the sport just through a documentary. I think they're this one, they're trying to do the same thing. And our boy Dan Rappaport shows up on this thing. So he's one of the analysts that they they go to periodically for commentary. So I can based on one episode, I would recommend it as good fun behind-the-scenes golf, full swing not analytics All right. What else around the world of sports? Adi, what do you got? Well, I didn't do too much watching, but I did watch part of that NBA All-Star game. Uh-huh. Um, shocking in its boredom. <laughs> That's all I have to say. The, uh, was, the, best, uh, the best part of that was the draft by far. That was fun. A fun little moment. They yeah, drafted yeah. the teams live before the game. Um, but the game itself, I mean, I don't know why anybody would watch that. It's weird. Yeah, wow. it's crazy, and and even the Elam ending didn't do anything for it. And uh, I mean, it's just a, it's just it's almost, it's it's an exhibition. It's barely even an exhibition. It's like they just barely don't care who loses. Um, there's no pride points. I, I don't know what what how to change that or motivate. It seems like an impressive thing to do. Get the best players on the earth playing together in a game. What's it could be extraordinary, right? Well, that, that it's it is to some extent understandable. But I heard at one point they have Luka Doncic mic'd up. And the only interesting thing that he said was something like, you know, there's somebody, he, he's under the basket and someone comes in with the ball. It's like, I'm not, not going to injure him, not going to hurt him, not going to injure him. Like, this was his concern in the, on the defensive side of the court was not to injure the opponent. And so if that's, it's a, it's a completely understandable mindset for an exhibition game, basically, right? Look, it reminds me of what happens now in the Major League All-Star game, right? No one cares about the game. What actually do people pay attention to is the home run derby. Mm-hmm. So what's actually to me more interesting about NBA All-Star Weekend is the three-point shootout yeah. and, the, and the dunk contest. Now, 
The dunk contest this year had a surprise. You know, a, a guy that just got signed by the Sixers to a two-way contract, this guy, Mac McClung, who's a G League, a D League, G League, whatever they call it, the league G- below the NBA. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, he won the slam dunk contest. Um, and apparently this guy is a known highlight phenom. I mean, he's six foot two. He has this high school dunk reel, which apparently I've now watched many times. Um, but he won the slam dunk contest. I think it's, this is what's going to happen. I don't even watch the All-Star game, but I watched the Home Run Derby. I didn't watch the NBA All-Star game, but I watched the three-point contest, which Damian Lillard won, and I watched the dunk contest. In some level, you have to rethink the All-Star game in its entirety. I mean, if you think about its origin, in the days where barely any games were televised, you can only see American League games if you were in American League City or National League games or National League City. An all-star game, game was the only time you got to see the players from the other team. Think okay. back to the 1970s, uh, 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 Eric. When did you get to see the Big Red Machine? All-star game? I mean, the players from the, from the, from the or the World Series, if they made it. Yeah. It just was like a, another right. world. And it was, it was all we cared about because it would be an opportunity to see the, the, the great players from the other league. And they took it seriously and you got to watch them. It was televised. Um, now, you know, you got your highlight reel on streaming constantly and it's, so, it's seeing it at all time is just not, is not a, it's not a, a scary. It's, a, it's a great point, Adi. It's interesting. I wonder if baseball was the first all-star game. Did the other leagues copy baseball? I, it stands to reason, right? They've been around longer as a formal league. Right. Yeah. I think the baseball had to be, I mean, certainly Football wasn't even really around. The NBA has it wasn't really I, the ba- baseball All Star Game had to be the first. Okay, one. so I the interleague time in mid thirties or something like that. I mean, it was the I first. Mean, just recovered one of the motivations for the thing. I want I want to share one other observation. Was it interesting? Was it interesting that Giannis chose Tatum with his first pick? I thought it was fascinating that this their biggest rival in their conference, and they've banged against him for a couple of years now. Probably going to bang against him this year. His first pick, he chooses the Celtic. Isn't well, that interesting? It, it, it made me think of two things. One is I've always felt like one thing that you can glean from the All-Star game is at least in some ways, since it's not a real game, like who do the who do the players want to be the All-Star MVP? And in some sense, Tatum is kind of the great rising star of the league. Not that he hasn't been in the league a few years. But, you know, he's not LeBron at the moment. He's not Giannis at the moment. In other words, he hasn't gotten the recognition, even than Luka Doncic. But they literally not only did Giannis pick him first, but they fed him the ball enough times that he scored 55 points and scored and, and set an all-star game record. And that only happens if your own players want to feed you the ball and mm-hmm. think you deserve to be the all-star MVP. So I, I found mm-hmm. that interesting. Mm-hmm. Second, it also reminded me, again, of how – you know, the process, the Sixers process, this is pre, obviously, uh, Daryl Morey and all of this. It didn't work. I mean, if you think about it, it I, I have to admit, I don't know why, but Jason Tatum scoring 55 reminded me. We drafted Okafor, Jaleel Okafor, did not work. We drafted Ben Simmons, you could argue, not a great draft pick. We drafted Nerlens Noel, not a great draft pick. We traded the number three pick and the Sacramento unrestricted first round pick to trade up to get Markel Fultz when mm-hmm. Jason Tatum would have been available at number three. We not only would have had a Jason Tatum, we would have still had the unrestricted Sacramento number one pick. So to me, I, I don't know why, but when I was watching, I didn't watch much of the game, but when I saw that Tatum scored 55, it reminded me we could have had Tatum and 
his other players must respect him because they gave him the ball enough times to shoot to score 55. So, Eric, I mean, what, what do you conclude with that? Because it, this was, you know, a super sophisticated shot trying to go about this process. And, we, we, you know, if you want analytics effort at running a team, that was one of the best you'll ever have. And yet you just named a string of failures. I mean, not just a little bit. What's your conclusion? I, I think what happens is that, first of all, I think despite there's very few players, actually, if you look in the history of the NBA draft and even in the top 10 picks in the draft, there's a big difference between I'm drafting LeBron James at number one. I'm drafting uh, Hakeem Olajuwon at number one. I'm drafting Patrick Ewing at number one. Uh, I'm drafting Luka, you know, Doncic wasn't one. The difference between the the certainty of the one and two picks and as you go farther down drops off dramatically. I think the highest pick the Sixers ever had well, was Markel Fultz. Markel Fultz turned out to be the number that we drafted him first in that draft. Here's another bad pick. Sixers drafted Evan Turner, number two in the draft also. I mean, the number of top 10 picks that the Sixers have had that have failed but it's it's most teams. I I think I think the number last time I saw was like two thirds of all top ten picks never make an All Star game. Yeah, there's so a I, huge I, amount of error. When we've looked at it in the NFL, it's really hard to find people who are reliably better than average in the league. And it's not because no one knows what they're doing. It's just because it's so hard. It would be surprising if it weren't the same with NBA data, especially given. There's so many fewer picks. I mean, it's such a different enterprise. You get two picks, and the second round is so much less valuable than the first. I mean, it's unbelievably we spare. We saw that this year, Cade. Um, I'll trade you a guy, and by the way, here's five second-round picks just to get dumped this guy's <laughs> salary. Like, who cares? You can have as many second-round picks as you want. Have all of my second-round picks. Save me some money. <laughs> it's not that they never hit, but the chance of them hitting is so low. Um, all right, real quickly on the on the college side, because we're getting close to the end of the regular season, just a quick rundown. Eric, I think you were intrigued by the fact that Alabama was nibbling around at the top of the rankings. They're a football school. What are they doing up there on the top of the basketball? Now, I, actually, I had the opposite reaction was what's taken so long? Like if Alabama is so great for football, which it obviously is, why can't they be great for basketball? And I started to wonder, you know, how much overlap is there between the top teams? Like I was looking at the top, even just 10 teams. Alabama's obviously great in both. Houston, I mean, Houston's a decent football team. They, you know, but not not. Purdue, UCLA, Kansas, Texas, Virginia, Arizona, Baylor, Tennessee. What it it says one of two things. One is they're either uncorrelated or B. There's a more flat distribution in basketball, especially college basketball, and that there really isn't. You know, I don't know what I don't know if um, the, what the you know ESPN F you know foot, uh, college basketball rankings are, but maybe it's a very flat distribution. And maybe even as I go between top, let's say you know you guys have done this in Massey Peabody in college football, Alabama um, was it Clemson? Not Clemson, Alabama, uh, Georgia. And like Ohio State, we're like 13 points better than everybody else this past year. I think yeah. in college basketball, if you had like a 10 point difference, or I don't even know how you want to rank it, you probably have to go down 30 or 40 teams to get that large of a difference. I just don't oh, think that exists in, co- in college basketball. You're you're right. And I think one of the interesting features about this season, more than usual, it kind of feels like it's anybody's game. So you can look at, you know, you can look at somebody like Ken Palm. Ken Palm gives these power rankings in terms of points. And, you you know, you get a team that has 
two, four, five point advantage over the next 10. Um, but it's not big. And even Alabama, who was number one in the rankings going into, was it last, was it last weekend that they lost? They lost in Tennessee. Yeah, exactly. But they were underdogs in that game. Number one team. They were on the road. I mean, road, home court matters a lot in college basketball. But it's, I think it's shaping up to be an especially fun season or, or especially fun tournament. It's already been a fun season because there are so many teams that could win this thing. I mean, it's, I don't know, it's deep. It, I want to, we, we'll talk to some folks over the next couple of weeks and see how this season compares to others. All also, right. Just quickly, last, when we go, just quickly, when we go to March Madness, you know, we'll be able to see in some sense, if we just use a simple metric like the number of quote unquote seeded upsets, we may see a very large number this year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Any any last bits and bobs from around the world of sports before we take a break? Well, just one last thing in 10 seconds. Um, I just noticed that the Bruins who in hockey, who still may set the record, although they're now way behind the record, not way behind, they're behind. They may not even end up with the most points in the NHL. Like there is a chance that someone will catch them. They have a seven point lead, at least when I checked two days ago. Um, and so my view is, um, you know, they're regressing back inwards, if you'd like a little bit, and we'll see how it ends up. I don't think it changes my opinion of how they'll do in the playoffs, but they may not end up with the most points in the NHL season. Well, one other observation on the NHL, the, the Leafs made a big trade. We talked a lot about the NBA deadline. We did talk NHL deadline. They got a big trade, a couple of forwards from the Blues, I believe, and they had a good opening, some promise. They've got more championship experience on the roster now, still pulling for our guys up in Toronto. All right, guys, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now. Going to do an interview segment here. Going to have a conversation with an old friend of the show, Ravi Ramanini. Ravi is the founder of Source Football. It's a new venture he has with Sarah Rudd, his his partner, Sarah Rudd, life partner and venture partner. We first got to know Ravi when he was working with the Seattle Sounders. He's since moved to the great state of Texas, hanging out in Houston, working with some local clubs there. Ravi, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Eric and Ravi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Always delighted to get a chance to talk to you. So we've got a new MLS season kicking off this weekend. We uh, we got caught up even ourselves in the MLS season last year. We've, we've been doing, uh, Adi runs a bunch of students and PhDs and his own expertise. And among those efforts has been some work with the Philadelphia Union. I think they just re-upped again. And, um, you know, probably because of Adi, they made the finals last year. Um, sadly, <laughs> sadly didn't get it done. And then... My Austin FC were the semis on the other side, vanquished by the team that ultimately vanquished the union. So we've been pulled in, Robbie. We've been pulled in the MLS. How how do you feel about the season coming up? It's uh, it's you know uh, there is a new team, and uh, you know I think at the beginning of the season there have been a lot of good additions to the teams in the league in terms of new players coming in um, with the salary budgets going up. Um, I think there's been a lot more players available and with all the, you know, the, the football market hasn't fully recovered from the COVID effects, uh, football, international football transfer market. So you have a lot of players available, which who wouldn't be available normally at prices that, um, that are attractive for MLS. Okay. 
Okay. Not only that, I think, you know, more and more people, the league, the profile is increasing and um, more and more um, uh, players want to come and play in the league. And okay. uh, just a couple of, just a few weeks ago, um, Seattle Sounders became the first team to play in the club world cup. Um, they've won tell the, us, tell us about Champions the league. Tell us about the club world cup. What is the club world cup? The club world cup is a small tournament between all the, the, the continental champions of all the different continents, like the okay. winners of the champions league, Real Madrid, winners of Copa Libertadores, um, Flamengo, um, winners of CONCACAF champions league in this case for the first time an MLS team won that tournament last season. Okay. Um, Sounders and the winners of uh, African um, Champions League, Al Ali from Egypt, and okay. uh, and the Asian champion um, Al Hilal um, from Saudi, and okay. then the host. There is a, one team from the host country, Morocco, without um, Clasabanca. So the, these six teams plus the winner from the um, Oceania group, which is basically New Zealand and the rest of the islands excluding okay. Australia, because Australia is in the Asian Confederation now. Um, so there were six or set, set, um, six teams played this tournament, um, and Sounders lost their first game, so it's just kind of single elimination. Um, uh-huh. The format is a little... Um, Sounders are seeded like fourth, so they skip the first round, but they play the second round. Um, but they had to win their game. They lost in the 87th minute goal. Uh, oh, no. But it was like a great step forward for the league okay. uh, in terms of this happening. Robbie, it, it it goes to my first question, which I, I don't know if you, well, I'm just curious. What do we know about how the talent in MLS stacks up against talent in the other premier leagues? And you, you mentioned that it's rising. And is there some sense of what the distance is? And and we all know that it's not exactly on the same tier, so this doesn't mean to denigrate in any way. I'm really interested in the progress and to what extent that gap is closing. When do we, you know, can we ever expect the gap to close? How would you characterize? Because now we kind of measure these things objectively, right? I, I remember seeing the World Cup teams measured, like, just from a pure talent perspective, you know, team by team. So if we did that for the league, how would MLS stack up against the Premier Leagues around the world? There was a rating that came out um, maybe a couple of weeks ago. Um, I can send you guys a link just to play with. They basically ranked every club in the world, about 10,000 clubs or something like that. So the MLS clubs, the best MLS clubs have come in around 400. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that that's where they are. But again, like I think comparing leagues is hard because every league in Europe, if you take it, if you take the top four or five teams, there is after that the quality drops off pretty significantly, barring maybe the Premier League with the money they have, um, mm. and 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 a little bit the the Spanish league. But beyond that, I think all leagues the quality drops off. So once you get into that range of a mid-table team in um, Italian Serie A, or or even like second level in Italy, second level in Spain, second level in England. I think the best MLS teams would stack up with them pretty well. Wow. And now that, yeah, I I think that I would put best MLS teams out there. Now the worst MLS teams, probably much lower. How good are we? We're, we're acting as if we can just, I'm saying this is objective rating. And as soon as someone puts a report out of, we're looking at graphs and we just assume that it's accurate, but it's, we put numbers, you know, they'll grade MLB farm systems. And it means they're basically putting a number on every player. 
And baseball may be kind of the bar for our ability to do that. Are we really able to do that with soccer players? How well, are, how good are we at now valuing a guy or a woman on the field? I think we're not there yet. I mean, we're not as close to baseball on that on that front uh, because I think baseball helps. Like um, you know, it's a it's a mostly like a one v one type sport, like a right. matchup right. sport. Right. Right. And soccer has low scoring sport and eleven players on the field, and so, it, it so just makes it. Much then how harder. can we trust these ratings? How can we trust these ratings? How do we know that the Sounders are only the 400th best club in the world? You know, I think I think they they use some criteria. They're using this ELO method, which is just looking at uh, if this team from this league plays that team from that league, okay, so and what happened in these results. Yeah. Okay. So it's well, more that was top. Gonna be my, yes, Kate actually he didn't. He only semi stole my question, which is going to be about rankings of the teams. But I was going to ask you is one reason to have these tournaments in that in some sense you can build all the, since I, we've all done a lot of work here on ELO models, which is, you know, team A plays B, B plays C, C plays D. So you can actually, it's a, you can have kind of bridge and come up with a ranking of all the teams and you need this what's called overlapping design. But an even better way to do it is to actually have them play each other and see what actually happens. So do you think that's part of what's happening is that they're trying to design tournaments to kind of, draw the interest and try to help people rank across these leagues? I think this tournament, I don't think that was the idea behind the tournaments. What is going to happen though, is that something we can rate better, the at least the teams in our continent and maybe South America is that there is going to be a lot of collaboration between CONCACAF, which is the confederation of the North American and Caribbean countries and the CONMEBOL, which is the confederation of the of the South American countries, they're they're getting into some strategic um, agreements where the the Copa America, which is the which is the 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 continental tournament of South American countries, they're going to host the next one, which is in 2024 in the U.S. And six teams from the North American zone will qualify for that. It will be a 24 team tournament. So now you get more samples of us playing against South American teams and see that. So there's going to be a lot more collaboration between these two continents. As far as Europe and the rest of them, I don't think there is any effort going on to have more of these intercontinental tournaments, but for sure we can have a better, for example, this summer, there's going to be a tournament called the Leagues Cup, which is every club in the Mexican top division, every MLS club, they play in a month-long tournament. So MLS is off for the, yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, MLS is off for the month between mid-July and mid-August or something. And they play this tournament where all, all the matches will be played in the U.S. Uh, obviously, that's for money reasons. And um, and then so they made these groups of three. Um, there's going to be there's 47 teams. So they gave bye to the two champions. And then everyone else is in these uh, 15 groups of three. And, you know, they play they play all they play the games in the group and then they qualify for the round of 16 after that. Terrific. That sounds like a lot of fun. Listen, one other thing that we've heard about and it seems important is the new deal with Apple. So going into the season, MLS now has more money partly because of this deal, but it's interesting. So let's hear about it in soccer, but it's interesting beyond soccer because increasingly streaming is part of the way 
sports sell their product. So for example, it's a big part of the conversation in realignment in college football. So Amazon is getting involved. Will they do a deal with Pac-12? Will they come in as a second or third or fourth carrier in the Big Ten or the Big 12? So we're really hearing these streaming guys play a bigger role. What is the arrangement with Apple and MLS? Where does that mean we're going to watch MLS if we're chasing it down? And, and what is the impact going to be for the league? This is pretty groundbreaking for MLS to just completely switch to streaming because I think this is what the best deal they got in terms of, and also they feel like a lot of the um, MLS fans are more on the str- more younger generation and more into streaming and watching games mm-hmm. or consuming games off of their cell phones. Now that's happening with all sports, not just MLS. But um, so the deal is that all the games will be on Apple TV. You need to have the MLS season pass to have every single game. However, Apple is going to, if you just have the good old Apple TV, you can uh, watch up to six games per week for free. And I think there there are also few games, like some big like rivalry games that they're going to play, they're going to show on simultaneously on uh, more linear networks like Fox. Okay. Okay, excellent. Real quickly, aside, what are the big rivalries in MLS? In MLS, uh, I'll start with my 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 favorite, little biased, Seattle Portland. Yes, um, of course. Uh-huh. That's 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 a rivalry um, that dates predates MLS. It's been because these these two teams have history uh, of rivals called the Cascadia. That region is called Cascadia between Seattle, Vancouver, and Portland. They've been playing since 70s in different incarnations, different leagues, all the, okay. you know, NASL, USL, all of that. Um, after that, I think um, you have to come to more newer ones. I think the San Jose versus LA Galaxy used mm-hmm. to be a big deal when San Jose was good. Um, but I think it's kind of lost some of its um, luster in the, in the, in, in the recent uh-huh. years. I would have thought the two LA teams would have been a rival. Maybe they're too new to have a real rivalry going. I was going to come to that. That's the new rivalry in LA with LAFC versus LA Galaxy. Okay. Uh, uh, that's been pretty good because there was uh, when Zlatan Ibrahimovic was in the league uh, up until a few for a few for a couple of years until a few years ago. He actually raised the stakes because he would make you know how you know how Zlatan is and he would say things and then he would back it up. He would do a lot of trash talk. And then he had a game where he scored three goals. Um, is it, I think his first game of the you know in MLS was against LAFC, and he scored three. Um, if Lord. I'm not wrong, okay. and okay. and won the game. Okay, um, I was just wondering, Ravi, what is the salary cap for MLS, and if and how does the way that the salaries typically are distributed compare to? an English Premier League team or other teams? How does it work? Because, you know, in some sense, let's imagine you could get one of the, let's imagine you get Lionel Messi to play on the MLS. Would you have to give him 70% of the salary cap and then you'd only have, you know, 30% of the money to give to the other, I don't know, 20 some odd players? Or how would that work? So MLS salary cap is a lot more complicated than any salary structure in uh, European soccer. Um, MLS has... um, different buckets of money that you could give to different different designations of players. So there's what's called a designated player who only counts to about 12.5% of the cap. 
Meaning if the cap is 400,000, sorry, 4 million, he only counts to, I think, um, what would be that be like um, 500,000. That he would only count up to 500,000 on the cap. So you still have 3.5 million to sign other players. But you can only have three designated players. So in the case of Lionel Messi, if they have to pay him 20 million salary, only 500 of it will hit the, the salary cap. Okay. Uh, the rest is just the owner, um, the team paying paying him out of their pocket. Mm-hmm. And then there is another group of money called the um, targeted allocation money, which is every year the team the, each team gets about four million four to four point five. It keeps increasing uh, ten to fifteen percent every year. So I don't know the exact number now. It's about four four between four and four point five million. Now that's the money you use to. Um, that's like a use it or lose it. If you don't use it for a season, you can't carry it forward to the next season. So you have to spend it. Um, but if you choose not to spend it, that's fine too, but it's, it's discretionary. So mm-hmm. that's the money the teams use to get these European players for about a million dollars salary. Because if you think about it, um, you know, you like for a million dollar salary, there are not a lot of players outside of the top few leagues making that money. So you can you can you you expand the pool of players that you can get with that money, um, and then there is the domestic um, and the rest of it um, is the domestic um, where you sign the American players like um, that are making two hundred to two hundred to four hundred, um, and and also the minimum salary is close to ninety thousand right now, and those are usually your you're like number 18 through 24 on the roster, backups, college graduates, people coming out of college. And and um, yeah, so those are the roughly different buckets of money that's available for teams. So the salary cap itself, if anybody asks you, it's like 4.5 million. But on top of that, there is another 4.5 million of targeted allocation money. Then there is three DPs. Now they've added a new rule saying that where you can sign uh, under 22 play, players that are under 22 uh, age, um, they only hit about 200,000 on the cap, but you can pay like even a 5 million transfer. The idea behind this is that they want teams to sign younger players and MLS be part of the global soccer market where they can sell these players. So most of the mm-hmm. soccer players, if you look at their age curves, um, the peak age starts around 23, 24, 25. Depending on the position, it changes a little, but around that age. So the idea is that get them around 21, 20, 21, have them in the league for a couple of years, progress them, um, and then maybe sell them for profit. Um, mm-hmm. That's the idea behind that rule. That just mm-hmm. came into uh, into reality like, two seasons ago and teams have used different strategies to sign that. So all of this has basically made that, that, you know, using um, data and analytics and making smart decisions uh, is, is becoming more and more at a premium. So you could, you could literally build a roster that is worth maybe 20, 25 million using 8 million or 9 million. And I think that's where, like, I think you could use, um, you, you the using being smart becomes really important. Super interesting. So, but I want, we want to go there, but real quickly, just want to acknowledge that all of those machinations are the league trying to be creative 
in talent acquisition and not just acquisition, but like getting plugged into the international pool of players and the international flow of players. And there are just different mechanisms for increasing the chances that that happens. It sounds like, which is neat that the, that the league's trying to be that creative. Yeah, and the new point is also to, it's in some ways, like some teams have been using it to protect their own players that they're developing through their academy. So what uh-huh. happens is that you have a young kid that's 18, you know, he plays in your, in your development academy, which MLS has invested a lot in the last 10 years. So they're seeing the fruits of it now, but they don't want to make the, in the past, they didn't really have a way to, other than making him a DP, which is risky because you have three slots and you want to get the actual like performers in their peak age to come and, you know, be the, be the drivers of the performance in the team. So with this U22 rule, they can now give some of these kids that have potential more money earlier so that they can keep them. And instead of them leaving for maybe a 500,000 or a million dollar transfer when they're 21, now right. you have a chance to keep them till 23. And maybe you can, if they move right. on, then you get more four or 5 million. So um, the other feature, which you started alluding to, is that this complexity is an opportunity for sharp clubs. And of course, we want to hear a little bit about what you're doing. You've moved from the Sounders working inside to building a consulting shop where you're selling into these these teams. And presumably, you're there to make them smarter. So, and and that is kind of neat that the convoluted rules, with good intention and good reason, is actually an opportunity for a sharp club. So, do we have that right? And how much of your work is on the personnel side versus other corners of soccer? Our work is primarily on the personnel side. I think we do do some more like, so three major aspects to our work at source. Number one is player recruitment. I think that's probably takes 70, 60, 70% of our work. And then after that is um, self-scouting, analyzing the performance of the team, identifying the needs for the team, weaknesses and strengths. And the last bit is opposition analysis, trying to help the match preparation um, the teams prepare for the next opponent and and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the what we're doing at Source is that one of the problems the football clubs are general sports organizations around the world, football in particular, especially you know being in so so many different countries, is that they even the clubs that realize that they need help uh, with analytics or getting smarter at making decisions overall. They don't know. They have a cold start problem. Of they can't. They don't know who to hire. Um, mm-hmm. They can see people on the internet, and you know they can see the resumes, but they don't know what is Python, <laughs> and they, they don't know what is good or bad. So yes. I think they have that problem. And the second problem is even if they kind of hired um, a good engineer or a good data scientist with the help of a recruiting company, um, the problem is that they the team will have to scale pretty quickly to be able to for them to catch up. And if you just have one data scientist and he's pulled into day-to-day every day, uh, I have lived lived that life early on in my career at Sounders. You can't really advance much on the strategic stuff. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is our our goal is to help clubs that are at different stages in their analytics and the overall improving the decision-making part of their journey Mm-hmm. Um, and jumpstart their analytics operations, meaning mm-hmm. we will come in and we will um, build um, their infrastructure uh, while 
so the longer term things that we'll do that we'll build an infrastructure, we'll help them hire um, data scientists or, or the personnel that they need. But while we're doing that, we're also building an infrastructure for the club uh, because that's kind of basically Sarah and I, we worked at Microsoft together before coming into football. So we have a lot of tech background. Um, and so we can then, and and while we build all this, we help them in the current markets and the current win, uh, transfer windows, we help them with analytics, meaning, okay. And then at some point, maybe two, three years down the line, the club might become pretty self-sufficient to doing this themselves. At that point, we want to take a step back and just do strategic projects and let mm-hmm. them run with what they have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Odd. Are you doing one club at a time? Is that the goal or you? We, right now, we are working with um, three different clubs. Okay. Uh, but we, but you, you, you're, you're, um, you hit on to a good point is that the, the way we are integrating with these clubs into very deeply integrated, we're not going to scale to like um, dozens of clubs. I think yeah. we we will be very very strategic and very selective in the clubs we choose. Um, uh, and we also don't want to just sell a piece of software to clubs and say, go find use this to filter lists of players. And I think so. Mm-hmm. So we will have a kind of a cap, um, you know, and and that also will be the kind of the where we have to balance, okay, do we add more people and and keep growing linearly? But but I think we we do have like a soft and a hard limit on that. Is it do how I'm sorry, real quickly, how MLS focused is it versus international? So we we are gonna work with a couple of clubs in MLS and um and I think probably not many more than that, maybe maybe a third one if we get an ideal partner in the future. But I think we'll probably limit us ourselves in, in in terms of MLS. But we go to the other um you know we're looking at Mexico, we're looking at Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been talking to a lot of clubs since we've launched our company. Um, so hopefully by summer we have a we have a, a few more clubs that are outside MLS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I stepped on you there. Yeah. Um, uh, so I actually just wanted to get a, a lay of the land in MLS. Um, uh, we know. What, we know watch I, it, Robbie. He's coming. He's coming for your job, man. This is your competitor. No, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hardly. Uh, no, we, we, we love to, to kind of get a sense of what, what is, how in deep are anal- is analytics overall in MLS? What's the range? Like in baseball, you'll find teams with over 30 and teams that the minimum would be five or six. Um, averaging you know, something like 11 to 15. It's hard to know exactly. Um, but in football, it's still relatively small, despite the, its its impact. Yeah. And basketball, I think, is even smaller, even though teams like the Sixers might have 10. What is it in MLS? I think MLS, most clubs, I think almost every club in MLS, I don't know of a club that doesn't have at least one person. So I would say there is at least one person in every club. I think the biggest teams... I'm talking about full-time count. Maybe they use some yeah. interns and stuff, but the full-time count, the biggest probably is like three or four. I don't think there's more than four at any club. Maybe there is someone where at Sounders, we had we had some video guys, you know, doing half and half type thing, but maybe they have, you can add more people like that. But pure mm-hmm. data scientists, data engineers, I think in MLS, I don't think there is a team with more than three or four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, listen, Robert, we're going to have to let you go, but we're always glad to get time with you. Thanks for carving out some of it for us today. We wish you the best with the new venture. Source Football is the new venture with Ravi and Sarah Rudd. And 
You can follow Ravi on Twitter at Analyze Footy, at Analyze Footy. Always a good follow. Uh, we, um, you know, great to talk to you guys as always. Great to yeah, see we'll, you, man. I'll look for Sarah. At, uh, uh, love to say hi and introduce ourselves. At the we'll conference. chase Sarah down in Boston. Come, come see us in Austin. Let's, I want to go watch a little soccer with somebody who knows what they're talking about. I know we talked about it last year. I didn't think we haven't talked kids since then, you know. So, yeah, for sure. I think Sounders are playing in Austin, I think, 30th of August. That's probably uh, or around that time. That's probably when maybe we'll we'll try to come over there for sure. Um, sure. But, uh, peak, but yeah, if, Austin, if I'm there. Peak Austin weather, Robbie. Peak Austin weather you're finding there, <laughs> August 30. Um, but we'll we'll do it. I'm 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 excited to have you get down here in Texas. All right, we're gonna let you go. Thanks for being with us. Ravi Ramanini. Guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We saw two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now, another interview segment. We're continuing with our return to our original format with interviews in the middle segments. This quarter, Ethan Strauss. We are delighted to have Ethan on the show for the first time. Ethan is a writer. You may have seen his stuff. He's got a substack called House of Strauss, House of Strauss, where he publishes articles periodically. Before this venture, he wrote for The Athletic, focusing on the NBA. We're going to learn more about Ethan, and we're going to tell you why we have him on the show here in a little bit. But to begin with, Ethan, afternoon. Thanks for joining. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you. Adi found an article of yours before the Super Bowl that was riveting, I would say, Mm -hmm. on why we need the Super Bowl. So we want to hear more about that. But before we dive into it, Let's get some background on you to start with. Where are you calling in from today? I am calling from the Bay Area, the East Bay suburbs, somewhere tucked between the green hills this time of year. All right. Well, appreciate you making time for us. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you come to write for, five? was it 538? No, The Athletic. How did you come to write for The Athletic? Um, And how did you come to leave The Athletic? And tell us about the House of Strauss venture. I'll make it uh, the bio as quick as possible. Um, I graduated from college uh, during that recession of 2008, 2009. I took a PR job with the NBA that paid about 17 grand. And somehow, I don't even know how it was legal, but you work seven days a week, waking up every day at 3.30 <laughs> a.m. and reading literally everything written about the NBA and sending a memo to David Stern and the other people in the organization about what was written about the MBA, which was a fantastic education in sports media. I didn't know anything really about this world. I was an MBA fan. It it seemed like a cool job. I wanted to move to New York, do the cliche thing. Um, But I learned that there are these jobs called beat writers. I, I wasn't aware. I grew up in San Diego. I didn't even know about this stuff. But that mm-hmm. you as a beat writer would travel and watch NBA games courtside often. And mm-hmm. I was looking at that going, you know, waking up 3.30 a.m. every day, uh, not leaving my terrible apartment in Brooklyn. Uh, this seems bad. 
this other job seems cool and it's getting innovative. I remember Brian Windhorst back then started doing these post-game videos uh, when he was a Cavs beat writer and he had this big microphone. I was going, oh, this is getting multimedia. This is getting interesting. And so upon my exit, because I decided to come back to the Bay Area, um, I wrote an article about Ricky Rubio getting drafted by the Minnesota Timberwolves in 2009 mm-hmm. and how my job was to usher him around for hours while he was disappointed, crestfallen, sad, because he did not want to go to the Timberwolves. And mm-hmm. that experience of a teenage Ricky Rubio um, having to be just marched through all these different interviews at this moment of his life, uh, yeah. I turned into an article. It burned some bridges with the NBA. They were not happy with it, but it went a little bit viral. Deadspin at the time excerpted it, and that was my first taste of oh, okay, I can write some stuff that can that can actually that can actually gain an audience somewhere. And yeah. so, the long story short, uh, ESPN um, Warriors beat writer. The Warriors take off like crazy. I got very fortunate with that. I had nothing to do with that. I'm not Steph Curry. And um, so ESPN beat writer eventually leads its way to athletic NBA and Warriors coverage. And then eventually I got bored with all that after the pandemic and I decided to start my own site. There you go. That's the short version. Ethan, your first publication on Rick Rubio, where did you where did you publish that? It was on the Free Darko blog, uh, which was this countercultural uh, this countercultural blog that also they turned into a few books, I think, that that were successful. And it was this Internet phenomenon of these very grad school guys who were looking at basketball in a unique way. And they they had their own art. It was that it was before social media, I think, is when it really rose up. And so the Internet was a wilder, weirder place. And um, they, uh, I think, have since moved on and and, and it is no more. But the Free Darko blog was a big deal, and um, that's that's where it's published. I think you can still find it somewhere. I think it's called The Spaniards Bar Mitzvah. Just one quick follow-up. Um, you left to go to the Substack route. Um, I'm not sure I got it right, but partly that was financial, and also it was partly sort of was freedom. You, you felt that you could talk much more openly when you were writing for yourself. Well, I don't know if it was necessarily a financial move, although it has worked out financially, thank God, um, because you know, I have to sell my sell my family on doing such a thing and getting out of a three-year contract to do it, which in media is theoretically an insane thing to do. But yeah, it's, it's freedom and it's this feeling of, it was a lot of things. I was very well treated at The Athletic. Um, but I think part of covering the Warriors, because they're such an observed team and they're such a big deal and anything they do is news. And it was like that for a while. You know, it's funny. People would say that you have the best job in the world and you have a great job just in that you have a job and you're close to something people care about. But that wasn't really the experience of people covering the Warriors as media. And I remember that. I remember being at a Warriors practice and uh, Michael Lewis, the great nonfiction writer, Michael Lewis was there observing it. And he turned to myself and my friend Marcus, uh, who was covering them for a newspaper at the time, and he said, you guys have the best job in the world. Oh, my God. (laughs) I remember thinking to myself, 
I think I'd rather be Michael Lewis. <laughs> I think I'd rather uh, be making millions of dollars, getting my stuff optioned, um, have freedom to chase whatever I'm interested in. Mm. The Warriors, it was amazing for me that that happened, but it became a real grind. And after the pandemic, you really felt like you were getting blood from a stone topics wise. Well, adaptation's a hell of a thing too. I mean, you sit there and watch Steph Curry, you know, five days a week or whatever it was. And, and even... Mm. You, you get accustomed even to Steph Curry. I mean, that's just human nature. Eric. Yes. Ethan, since we're an analytics show, um, I wanted to ask you, but I'll put on my other hat as a marketing professor. How do you think about the analytics of House of Strauss? So in the field of marketing, we think about analytics like customer acquisition costs. Yeah. How much stuff to be in front of the free wall versus the paywall? What's the customer lifetime value? What's the churn rate? So we talk about analytics of sports, but as a business person, as someone that started their own business, how much do you think about the analytics of you know your financials? Oh, I love that you asked me that um, because I ignore it for the most part, but a lot of my peers don't, and they are very smart about it, and they target it, and they figure out what works and what doesn't. Their customer drops off if they do this or doesn't if they do that, and it's not that I reject this information as useful. I know it's quite useful. I just know that there are, there are externalities to that. And that I, I, if I was an organization, I would want somebody, I would demand somebody's looking at all of that. But I'm one person and I'm the research arm and I'm the creative arm. And if I'm thinking too much about all this other stuff, it's going to paralyze me creatively. And mm-hmm. I know that about myself. And so... I do blind myself to a lot of that feedback. I just know when I'm getting more subscriptions and I know when I'm getting fewer. And I think that's good enough for me. And you also just have context. I recently, uh, we just we just had a, my, my son, my second son, uh, about four months ago. And I know in the aftermath of that, I'm not going to be cranking like usual. I'm going to stagnate. I'm not going to grow. Now my son is going to go to a daycare that we trust and I know that I have more time and I'm going to start cranking again. And that's when I expect the subs- uh, the subscriptions to be to be rolling in. And I think you just look at it as long-term, are you growing? If you're not, you have to look into that. But you don't want to just get lost in the noise mm-hmm. and not know where the signals are. And mm-hmm. I just have a very dumb guy mentality about it, which is me right good, money make. That's- <laughs> really what it is (laughs) well look you you're you're on the show basically today we're glad to know about you in general we should have known about you before i'm sure we've read your stuff back in the day but this article you wrote in the super bowl published i think super bowl sunday um jumped out and um i can i can only say that you know one it's obviously well written but it jumped out from a it has a point of view that you don't usually hear and yet resonates um, and I can tell you that I shared it with a buddy of mine who plays major college, played major college football. And he said, you know, I wrote something like that myself to the Alumni Association a few years ago. It's like that perspective is real. I'm curious um, where the article came from in your life and what kind of reaction you got to it. But maybe before that, let's hear from Adi. Adi, who's kind of late to the football game amongst the four of uh, the co-hosts, is, is curated this article for us. So, Adi, what was your reaction to it and why did you why did, why did it grab your attention? It grabbed my attention because it, it's, it's a different point of view. So I'm not sure all our listeners know. So the title is Why America Needs Football, Even in Its Brutality. And uh, mm. 
and it and that catches my attention. I'm learning as as Cade pointed out. I've learned a lot about football the last you know eight years. I still don't know anything about it uh, fundamentally. When it's a complex game, but one of the things that makes it so fun to to watch is that it, it it's that violent aspect of it. It's it's war. Um, if you quote, uh, um, forget yeah. the comedian um, who described uh, Carlin. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, so beautifully. That's it's war, and and that's what's actually happening. And it's great. It's 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 entertaining that way. But the point that you were making was that it's actually an outlet for. Uh, it's like it's almost a healthy outlet for for a natural tendency to want to settle things with uh, with yeah. violence. Um, I'm actually, yeah. um, but you also talk a little bit about, you know, the, the fact that it's, it's, it's kind of built into the game and, and, and in other sports in particular, obviously hockey has a violent component to it. I know much less about it, but even baseball, which is the sport that I know most about, they've kind of cleaned it up over the years, um, to make it safer and safer and safer. And in fact, this year we're coming in with new bases and the major reason mm. for the new bases is safety. And uh, yeah. and it's it seems kind of funny that these sports that everybody knows that they're what they're involved with are, are so focused on that component. Yeah, um, and you can never really divorce it from the unsafe elements in football. Uh, the analogy that people use is it's like trying to make a safer cigarette. There's just a fundamental collision that's at the heart of the sport. But I think what I was trying to do in my article was explore the violence and the appeal and the purpose it serves, because I think it's really easy for a lot of intellectuals. I think I would cite Malcolm Gladwell to go, Oh, this is just dumb knuckle dragging stuff that appeals to our base instincts. And we're a bunch of dumb American idiots. And so we're just looking at the specter of uh, bodies getting destroyed and there's no real, okay, what's, what's happening here? You know, what is the pull of this? What is the appeal of this? There's something powerful happening. I mean, the paradox of it all is the Washington Post survey of former players that over 90% of former players report having daily aches and pains that the overwhelming majority connect to their football playing days. But over 90% of those players don't regret playing. That is is something if you're a curious person that you should really look at and think and about they don't and Ethan, they don't like a lot of the current rule changes no no it's it's that's the paradox you, know, you you tell me most anything is going to make me feel pain every day for the rest of my life i will regret having done that thing i will not want to have done <laughs> it but in this case there's something powerful happening here and it's spiritual i i didn't use some of these quotes but uh kittle the great tight end on the niners and his father would talk at length in uh, tyler dunn's book that's just about tight ends which i found fascinating i mean he he sort of identified tight ends as the uh the uber football player the guy who kind of combines all elements of football into one um and they talk about how when you go in between those lines out there when you can really get hurt, you're on sacred ground. And so a lot of the article was the sense of the danger imbuing the action with a sort of legitimacy and a power that you can't get elsewhere in the other sports. I would cite the play that might have decided the NFC championship because I was over at my friend's place. We're watching the Niners. Their rookie quarterback drops back. The backup tight end on the Niners doesn't hold up in his block just enough. You know, he just doesn't provide enough resistance. Boom. 
the quarterback's elbow torn. He's injured. He's knocked out of the game season over. Hey, in basketball, man, you make a mistake, maybe you give up a basket. Maybe you give up a couple baskets before you're taken out. Maybe it impacts the the final score. Football, you make a mistake, your teammate gets maimed and gets hurt. And I know somebody like Malcolm Gladwell looks at that and is repulsed, and I can certainly understand that perspective. But the other side of that coin is that is real, and those guys on that field together are sharing an intense moment and an intense bond in something approximating the foxhole in a way that you're just not going to get in those other sports. And that's part of what people are tuning in for and part of why they're so captivated by what they're watching. I'm just going to comment, Ethan. One of the things that's been studied in media and consumption in my home field of marketing about what makes things exciting is something you just mentioned, which is any play could end up having extremely high leverage on the outcome of the game. And people like things when it's not just surprise, like anything could happen, but this could be the play that changes everything about the game. And that brings a level of enjoyment and excitement about it. Definitely. Those big swings. I mean, football is great at those beyond the safety aspect, beyond the legitimacy that violence lends. uh, Somebody can intercept a pass in one end zone, wipe seven points off the board and run it back and put seven points on the board on the other side. Um, It's those big swings and those tension, those pregnant moments filled with tension that that people are, uh, I think, really into. Uh, But the violence is is definitely a component rather than running from it um, and sort of denying the functions that it serves. uh, I think it's good to at least acknowledge it and admit it and then try to mitigate it. You don't want the game to be maximally violent. You don't want guys dying out there on the field. Um, If you can preserve the essence of the sport while making it a healthier sport, that's certainly something that's certainly something that you should do if you're, if you're running the sport of football, but it, I think it's important to understand that there's no, there's no extricating. I mean, this is indivisible, uh, the violence and the appeal of the sport. There's no, there's no getting away from it. You're not going to make it flag football and it's going to retain its essence. So just uh, one thing that you point out is that, is that the, the popularity of the sport, and I think, and its connection to the, the, its essence. But if I look at what has happened in other sports, and what and which are sort of waning in popularity slightly, or maybe significantly, is that there's a feeling as a as a viewer that the players don't care so much about the outcome, yeah. and you never have that feeling in football because you just can't ever get that feeling because otherwise you can't tackle anyone, you can't protect anyone. The the, the yes. violent aspect of it makes the, as a, a viewer you know that the people there care deeply, and and I think that like you basketball I feel like has lost that ba- uh, baseball yeah. has lost, so, lost it. I don't want to interrupt you, but it's just so funny you're bringing it up because I think I said something like that. And my editor, because he's a very smart guy, the guy who edited the piece, who really, I think you asked earlier, how did this piece come come about? It's he he was having a phone conversation with me. Um, and he sort of asked me about a, a, a potential Super Bowl, Super Bowl topic. And I just started rattling off what I think, not really anticipating doing an article and the editor uh, Peter uh, Savodnik over at the free press said you should write that you know people aren't you know people aren't saying that and I in in the article to what you're saying I said basketball has lost that sense with some people that it's real and a lot of people are feeling like it's kind of fake and contrived and Peter said 
well, can you cite a source for this? Can you cite an article for this? And I realized it was kind of difficult. There was nobody who was really spelling it out that basketball started to feel kind of fake, and yet nobody would dispute it. Everybody sort of understands it. We just had the All-Star game, and it's a joke. They're scoring nearly 200 points. Um, It doesn't look at all like basketball. And what went viral was a game from the early 2000s, and somebody said, what happened to the game we love, man? And you just see Kobe Bryant, Allen Iverson, Vince Carter, and these guys are really competing East versus West to win a game that's of no consequence. But just the idea is that you're supposed to compete. And if you're there, you're supposed to do it. I'm not saying that they, I mean, the Pro Bowl right now in football, their all-star game is flag football and whatever. But I, I do think that the NBA has eroded the sense that the guys are that bought in. They change teams a lot. They talk about their own personal brand. And maybe I would do the same were I them and I had the capability. But football doesn't have that. And again, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, is when they're out there, they can really get hurt, which means they've got to really care about everybody around them. And they've got to operate as a team. And it's all the cliches. It's everything in that Al Pacino any given Sunday speech is real about that sport. And that's a huge part, I think, of why football on a relative basis is more popular than when the New York Times and the New Yorker were talking about its demise back in 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, and these other sports have waned in popularity. Uh, they just don't seem legitimate as much but to the American people. Does it put us as fans in an ethically compromised space? It's one thing to quote athletes as saying, former players are saying, yeah, I'll do, I would do it again because of what it meant to me, how meaningful I find it now at the end of my life. I would do it again. We, you're saying that we enjoy it because of its violence, but we don't bear the cost of that violence. So it's, no. the, it's, it's only because these other people are going to sacrifice part of their health, at least probabilistically that we get this extra meaning, but that's a little bit warped, isn't it? Yeah, it might be. I mean, it, it, it's sort of uh your mileage might may vary. Um, I, I wouldn't have any issue with people saying, hey, can't support this. Don't want to. It's not where my ethics are. Now, I, I dislike the genre of articles where people wring their hands over it and go, I struggle to, you know, I, I, I struggle with my football watching addiction. I don't really, I'm not interested in that. Watch it or yeah. don't watch it. I don't really need to hear about your process in doing so. Um, but yeah, I mean, potentially, potentially, but then the other perspective is these are grown men. This is what they're deciding to do. And the overwhelming, uh, majority of circumstances, uh, they don't regret doing it. So if we're trying to prevent them from doing it, then we would have to ask why would we rather that they, I don't know, put up drywall or whatever sort of other job they might be doing, maybe a more highfalutin job. I don't know. Um, I don't think it's such a bad thing that, their life went in this particular direction. Um, you'd, you'd even the, say, you'd take, yeah. say it the other way around. You're like, our, our fandom supports the choice that they're making. It provides them that alternative and they're choosing to yeah. make it. They, they're saying they would do it again and they only able to do that because of fans. That might be the full rationalization. Yeah. Well, but I, I just, I just I, want to acknowledge that we're, I, well, I actually want to call out. There's just multiple elements here. I, I like yeah. having this topic on the table and talking about, let's really be honest with ourselves about the mechanisms inside that drive our interest. Cause I a hundred percent agree that they're there and that they're atavistic as hell. And that's part of the, that's part of the appeal of the game yeah. uniquely to football. Yeah. And I, I should say the trickier moral territory from my perspective is the youth 
football uh, sphere where, well, what do you do there? When do you start playing it? Do you start at all? Should a high school, I mean, they're not going to stop. I don't think Texas is going to stop doing high school football, but I think it's fair. It's a fair question to ask whether uh, high school should be doing high school football, considering the risks and whether it should be such a focus at the university level. There's always, I've been sympathetic to the Gladwell arguments on that front, even if people might find them to be, I don't know, prissy. I, I, I find that those hold intellectual weight, those stand up because you're talking about people funneled into a system. But I, do, I don't like the component of this debate, which is as though these poor noble savages who couldn't, you know, make any other kind of choice, found themselves in this circumstance on a gridiron. No, they worked their asses off to do this. They went through a lot of toil and sacrifice to do this. I don't understand why we should be the ones making the choice for them. They are grown adults. They can make this choice for themselves. And if they want to make the choice, then they want to make the choice. So I think at the pro level, I don't have much of a moral uh, concern. The younger levels, the youth level, that's, that's where you can really get me on that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's let's also talk about the analytics side of your life. We know that you're hosting a panel at the Sloan Conference coming up now in just about a week and a half or so. You, uh, you're, you, what what is your perspective on analytics? What role has it played in your reporting and your journalism in the past? And what's the nature of the panel going to be? Well, I love the book Moneyball, like everybody. Um, so I'm sure that anchored a certain interest in sports um and okay well that's a big question when you say what is the role of analytics because we're just talking about data it it could go so many it can go so many different places um and i i should say that the topic unless anything changes between this conversation and when it happens will be on the use of ai in sports so that's almost the new level the next level where you're going from we've got some smart guys in the back room analyzing the statistics to we've now delegated it to a machine to be the analysis to be our consultant um and i don't know if anybody's ready for whatever that chapter is and people smarter than myself are going to help try to answer it um and i don't i don't think that we could have ever enough time to get to the bottom of it so i'll be intrigued by whatever we're going to discuss but there's so much to discuss on that particular on that particular subject. I mean, the, the analytics, the analytics thing is interesting um, because you should obviously make use of it if you're trying to improve, but in the NBA, it's led to a certain aesthetic drought, somewhat hazard similar in baseball as well. And there's this issue that happens sometimes. Um, what is this? Is that Campbell's law that once, um, a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a useful measure. Um, you, you see that happening sometimes where everybody does the same thing and then it ceases to be an advantage strategically. And then there's this other component where aesthetically in the NBA, I was just talking to a GM and he was saying everybody plays the same style now because that's the most analytically fruitful way to play. Just threes and shots at the rim. And when he was growing up, all these different teams had their different styles. The Showtime Lakers, the Celtics, the Pistons, they all were different. We want to see that. But the analytics movement has revealed in basketball that the style should be this one thing. And it's very homogeneous. It's homogeneous and it's high variance. And I think that to a lot of the public isn't as interesting. And then in baseball, a lot of the small ball 
has been excised from the game. And it's all about launch angle and walks and home runs. And that's not as fun. And so that's this, um, that's this externality to the analytics movement that I don't think we were completely prepared for. Where so hold on, Ethan, hold on, hold on. This, 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 this line of thought drives me crazy to some extent because <clears throat> analytics is getting blamed for really the consequence of efficiency and learning. Yes. Analytics is just accelerating learning. And so it's making learning more efficient. And so we're getting out to the frontier, but it's not analytics fault. It's like, it's, it's no. optional. Well, an- an- it's analytics is a person. Basically. It's just optimization, yeah. but it's happening faster than it used to happen. Yeah. Analytics isn't a person. It's not its fault. It is optimization culture. And you're supposed to optimize if you're trying to win. And so if I, if you want to blame somebody in this scenario, it wouldn't be analytics. It'd be the people for running the sport because it's right. their job to align the incentives of the sport with the best aesthetic option. By the way, we've seen that happen before. Um, I think an underrated story of the NBA is when they had this massive popularity drought following Michael Jordan. And what did they do? They changed the rules of the game because they needed to. And the rule changes aligned more with what the fans wanted to see. So mm-hmm. I think it's almost this process where the exploitation of analytics, rightfully done by the general managers and coaches, can lead to an aesthetic drop-off that then needs to be corrected by the leagues themselves. But if they're not vigilant Mm -hmm. about doing that, well, then you get uh, 160 to 155 and nobody actually cares. (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing that you're describing is is homogeneity. I mean, the game gets boring if everyone has sort of figured out this is the optimal way to play. And the only antidote to that is rule changes. I mean, that's only, and I think just to switch to baseball, I think um, the stolen base, the, the larger base, I should say, it, is intended to make it safe. But the, mm. the actual reality of it is it's making the bases closer. Um, Smart. And which will make stealing, small ball, a little bit more efficient. What analytics showed, for example, is that most running is, uh, is just not effective. It, it, the, the caught stealings balance out the successes, and it's just almost a neutral thing to do. At generally at best in some cases you only get also out of you only get a certain number of throws now too which is also going to mm, induce even that's more that's going to do it as well and also yeah. and here's another one the one that i've been talking about um they're making the pitchers throw every 15 seconds and that's to speed yeah. up the game but i also think it'll tire the pitchers out requiring them to actually use a little bit of guile instead of just trying to overwhelm with with their with their velocity so this is nice you know, uh, should hopefully be an antidote to everyone sort of deciding that the best thing to do is get on base with a walk and clear the base with a homer. Yeah. And that's what you got to do. I I, I'm supportive of baseball tinkering and trying to do that. And I think we sometimes lose track of how sports are just their rules. We talk about greatest player of all time as though these guys I'm thinking about basketball played the same game, but they didn't. When they change the rules of the game, they change what traits are selected for. So, look, people go, oh, my God, what happened to the center? What happened to the center in basketball? Well, in the 1990s, they had something called illegal defense. And it's a little bit arcane, but the basics of how it works is that if there's a double team, the guy has to run right back from whence he came on the double team. It was to prevent zone defenses. Well, 
part of the rule changes that they implemented when they were trying to save themselves in the post-Jordan drought was to get rid of illegal defense. It was fought, vigorously fought by Pat Riley, Rudy Tomjanovich, coaches that, um, you know, coaches that were defensive specialists and knew their craft well. There's that, that rule that, um, anybody, um, is a reactionary about their own field of expertise, uh, or anybody's a conservative about their own field of expertise. And so you saw that play out. Well, once they removed the legal defense, guards could swarm a big man. He couldn't just with his back to the basket kind of leisurely bounce the ball. He knows exactly if he's getting a double team where it's coming from. Suddenly it could come from ev- it just come from everywhere. And it's Gulliver's travels uh for that big guy and he's getting tied down. So that that changed the game. It made big men less valuable as offensive players. It made mm-hmm. perimeter threats more valuable. So you change the game, you change the game. And that's why you have to do it carefully. You don't want to do it all willy-nilly, but it really has an effect. And I think sometimes people think of the game as this platonic thing that that can't be morphed, but it can be morphed quite significantly. Mm-hmm. Super interesting, Ethan. We're going to have to let you go. Before we do, one last question. What has your eye around the world of sports right now? What 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 are you interested in as a fan or as a writer? Oh man, there, there are so many. There are so many answers to that question. Uh, let me think about what what might be coming down the pike. I'm always fascinated by the different cultural controversies and where sports are. I think sports are a little bit uh, paradoxically situated in that they want to be seen for brand awareness as with the fashionable ideologies of our time. Uh, sensitive, inclusive is something that you'll hear these sports talking about, but they're not an inclusive endeavor. It's Darwinian cruelty. Um, <laughs> that's 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 really what drives the sport. And on the ground level, these guys—I'm not saying they're bad people, but being a beat writer at least lends me some insight. They're not nice. They're not nice. That's not how you make hundreds of millions of dollars in simulated combat in front of 20,000 people and millions of people watching that's you know that's that's killer be killed and it inspires a certain mentality and so trying to get these guys uh, merged into a message of kind of touchy feely whatever you want to call it whatever value you see in it i think is is difficult and the leagues have had a bit of a problem trying to make these guys uh, spokesmodels for all of this. Well, look, I think the, yeah. I think the cure is just to have Jewel play your national anthem before your All Star game. I think that softens oh. it right up. <laughs> it might it might soften the image, but here's the problem: people want that. People want the toxic meanness. They're drawn to it. Why was Michael Jordan's documentary the most watched player documentary anybody ever seen? Was it because he was so nice? No, it's because people are drawn to that kind of cruelty. That, that that cruelty of genius and competition, it's the little rotten part of the perfume that keeps people coming back. Uh, they're, they're a little bit into that. They want to see Michael Jordan deliver that monologue in The Last Dance of how horrific he was to his teammates and what justifies it in his own mind. And I think a lot of people, and maybe it's part of the football theme, they want what they're into to also be pure, but part of why they're into it is its very impurities. And my website is just a place where we discuss some of that stuff rather than wish it all away. Got it. 
All right. Well, listen, thanks for spending some time with us today. Appreciate what you're doing. Um, look forward to seeing what you write next. Oh, thanks so much for having me, guys. Great talk. Absolutely. Ethan Strauss, you can find him on Twitter. He tweets at, at Sherwood Strauss, at Sherwood Strauss. You can also follow his work, House of Strauss. He's got a Substack called House of Strauss. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the fourth quarter, fourth and final quarter of Wharton Moneyball. This is Cade Massey hosting with Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. These guys have been in here with me for the whole show. We're going to close by talking about the one sport we haven't talked about yet. We're going to dedicate Q4 to baseball. We've got a little baseball going on. we got a fair bit in the news, and these guys are chomping at the bit to kick it around. So, gentlemen, what have you got? What in baseball has caught your eye? Well, they're now starting now that, um, you know, spring training has started or at least pitchers and catchers reported. I think spring training games are starting maybe even tomorrow or Wednesday or Thursday is the first games. I started to review the rule changes because I tried to ignore them at some point. But now there's no ignoring them because they're actually taking place. And I started to try to think about the impact of these rule changes. And, you know, one we briefly mentioned um, with our uh, interview with uh, Ethan Strauss. Um, but the first one is just kind of larger bases is going to change the geometry of the game. And we talked about it for safety purposes, but the reality is you say, well, you know, they're only like three or four inches larger. Okay. Well, you think about how many times a batter is out by a few inches, or you think about how many times someone's tagged out for a stolen base. Now, of course, there's two bases that are larger, let's say between first and second, that actually could change the distance by, I don't know, 1% of the distance. Um, that could have a very significant impact on, you know, number one, um, it could legislate needing players with greater speed. It could put greater value on that. You combine that with the rule change. I love Adi's opinion. You combine that with the rule change where you're only allowed two pickoff attempts per batter. So now the pitcher's thrown over twice. The batter knows he cannot throw over again. So that already provides another piece of information. I think it's going to change the amount of running in the game, and maybe that's what they're looking for. Well, it's interesting because um, it's actually four and a half inches, so it's closer to a half of a percent. Wow. Um, but so you get to three. So hold on. What, what is four and a half inches? Uh, the distance, that the cl- how much closer first base and second base, I guess, as well as second base to third base, are from each other. So they're two and a quarter, the, the side of the races are two and a quarter inches longer than they used to be. Um, the, uh, it's the, the, the second base bat is splitting those three inches in either direction. So it's centered in the middle. So it's one and a half closer inches on the, in each side. And then it's three, the, the first base is, is um, it's fully three in inches balance. farther so in, in field three inches in. So it's four oh, and a half point. inches total. The, ba- the bag is a much, much, much bigger. I mean, that's interesting because if, if it's three inches. So it's I think it's 15 squared versus 18 squared. So that's a lot bigger in terms of uh, squ- uh, actual size. If you've seen the pictures. You'll notice that they just really are a lot bigger. Um, Holy moly. That's 225 versus 324. Yes. I mean, that's almost 50% bigger. Yeah, it's 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 a so real much bigger. Guys, real quickly, what have you guys like? What are the guys like? who play first base say it must change the way they know where they are. And it might've even changed the way a person runs to first base. Are they so well calibrated that that small a change could affect 
Well, the, the idea is that they won't cross each other up as much, particularly at second base. Um, the the foot on the bag at second base for first. But even base. at first, Adi, because you pointed out, it's not like part of the bag is going to be sitting in out of play. The bag is still going to be lined up at the line. It's three yeah. more inches towards the infield. So now the the first baseman is three inches farther away from the where the runner's running. So now when the runner's running up the line, there's not going to be as much interference. There, three inches seems like a lot to me farther away. But also three inches closer from a, th- a throw from short. So it's going to be a little easier to get the guy out at first when you're now three inches closer to the shortstop or second baseman or third baseman. That's an interesting one. I mean, how many plays have we seen where three inches is enough to make the difference? Well, Adi, let's speculate here. Let's imagine you do the following. Let's imagine this makes I'm, – I'm, we're just talking here. This is what yeah. I do on our radio show. Let's imagine that the second baseman or the shortstop now can move three inches farther back, the same right. length throw, but now has greater range. Yep, a little bit. And and that's a percentage or two. I wonder how many batting average points it's going to cost them in terms of what are they going to lose in terms of extra hits in the season. No, all I was commenting on is you made the assumption that they yeah. play in the same place and have a shorter throw. Maybe they should move back, well, have a have same range. throw, and get greater range. Get greater range. But I uh, So these things are haven't really worked out. Um, but the I agree that I think the biggest and un, most unheralded change will be increases in running. The, bat, the, the bases are closer and also – um, the two pickoff attempts has got to be enormous. I mean, once he's thrown once, uh, certainly once he's thrown twice, then there's no more. It can't be anymore. Uh, although you can, of course, um, throw over um, and get him out, right? So if, you, if you've thrown twice, the next throw is an out or it's, or it's a stolen base or it's a, a balk or whatever they call it. Let me ask you a question. How much do we think – we've always talked about one thing baseball has done well is they've tried a lot of these things in the minor leagues. Yes. How much do we think there's, let's be statisticians for a minute, there are interaction effects between the level of play in these rules. So maybe these rules work well for players at the AAA level, but don't work well for players at the major league level. And in some sense, I'll use a statistical term, are we extrapolating beyond the range of data to a skill set and a speed that we don't see in the minor leagues? Um, I I don't think so in the sense that the biggest difference between the majors and the minors, uh, other than just experience and skill, is is attitude. I think that the the 15-second rule, uh, the one timeout, these are things that are going to bother the crap out of the the prima donna um, professional major league baseball players that they probably did not notice at all in the minor leagues because they just do what they're told. Um, they've got to throw in 15 seconds. They're going to throw. Uh, they're not going to. So I do think that that's probably going to be the biggest extrapolation that the, the psychology of it um, having to throw within 15, 20 seconds, whatever the rule is. I don't think Jake, Jacob Gram is going to be happy with that. Justin Verlander. These, these guys are not used to being told what they should do and they're not going to take it nicely. Um, when it comes to the bases, um, I don't think that's, I mean, the younger, younger guys are faster anyway. So um, who knows what's going to happen there? I don't think it's that going to be that much of an extrapolation. All right. So what else? What else, guys? There's more more than that, right? Oh, yeah. Well, the, shift, the shift is yeah, restricted. The shift, the shift is gone, at least when the ball is thrown. Yeah, there must be two people on each side of second base. Now, that doesn't mean that Adi Weiner, my shortstop and my uh, Cade Massey, my second baseman, can't stop, can't start sprinting into the shift position the minute the ball is thrown. But Adi must be standing to the if he's shortstop, the left yeah. side of second base and on the infield, not deep, not on the grass, not on the he grass, must be in yeah. the infield. So 
you start to think about, you know, it's kind of the more traditional positioning of players, which means clearly they're trying to raise batting averages. Yeah, but I also think uh, the big the big change, the shift is it's not even so much the shift, but they discovered that having a, a player, particularly a, a playing right behind second base, is just a good place to be. Oh yeah, and th- and that's not going to change. They might be not be exactly behind, but they're still going to be up the middle. Uh, you know, come on, think of Eric. Any time a ball was hit up the middle, that was a hit when we were but kids. What, but what happens when the guys? Time. But what happens when a guy, the shortstop, is back there, more or less right behind second base? And and he feels a ball on the second base side of that line. He's necessarily going to be one of three guys yes. on the second. On the no, that's base. fine. As long that's as when right. the pitch is thrown, he starts. Oh, the pitch is thrown. Yeah, when the pitch is thrown, but can sprint over, can make a play on the other side, can cut the ball, all this. But Adi points out he's right. I mean, what's really changed in baseball since we were kids is you hit the ball up the middle, it was a base hit. Now you hit the ball up the middle, you're going to hit right to somebody for sure. You're hitting the ball. I mean, that's exactly where they're covering. Yeah, and that's really had a big impl- implication on lowering a batting average. But I also think the the the, guy, the short outfielder, particularly against um, righties, I mean lefties, so that they would hang out there in the short outfield, that might change a little bit. We, I think batting averages should go back up a little bit, but I don't think we're going to see too much of a change. I just don't. I don't see the batting average. They're also not even trying to get hits anymore. They just want to hit home runs, doubles, walks. Let's let's get a little bit more on the table and talk about the collective effect of these things. So. What is the hitter one time out rule? What's going on with that? You know, the hitter steps out of the box like every second to adjust their gloves and all this. And that, that's all gone now. You must stay in the batter's box. You can step out once during the at bat. The next time you step out, it's an automatic strike. That's only about 15 years too late. My God. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we just talked in the last quarter with Ethan Strauss about optimization versus rule changes. And so do you guys consider this, some of this, it's, what, what do you consider the net effect of this? And is this, is this exactly what we were asking for? Is this exactly the game responding, you know, in healthy ways to the teams who have been optimizing as they should? I, 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 I'll just give my one second. I'd love to leave most of the time for Adi. Whether I think these rule changes are effective is a separate issue. I think it's their attempt to do both sides of what Ethan talked about in our interview, which is to make the game more entertaining by shortening the game, which is getting really long. In the minor leagues, they've shown this to shorten the game by about 25 to 28 minutes. Oh, my God. And that's huge. And then the second part is I do think they're trying to legislate against it being only home runs and walks. Yes, I do. Whether this is effective, I don't know, but that's their attempt. You know, it's funny. uh, Ethan Strauss used the expression that you're always a reactionary of the thing you know the most about. So if I had to go through and, and, and evaluate each of the rule changes, I'm looking at through the lens of returning to, to what, I, what I remember the most special about the game in the past. So I'm, not, I'm kind of neutral on the larger bases. Um, I don't think it's going to make that in, uh, big of an impact, and I'm in favor of more running. I'm in, uh, ecstatic about the pitch clock because that's, again, returning <laughs> it back to the old days when they just threw. Um, the two pickoff attempts I'm the least excited about because I think that's has in, uh, unpredictable consequences. Totally. It's going to be very different. Um, the two infielders on each side of it, again, I love that. It's bringing us back to the old deal for four infielders inside on the infield. So you don't have outfielders, infielders playing the outfield. I'm not that, I, I think that, that uh, hitters should have learned how to deal with it. Um, this, that has been around since Ted Williams day. 
Um, but I'm at sort of in favor of that. And certainly the one the one timeout, that's good, too. So the only one I don't like is the the two pickoff attempts, because I'm going to keep my eye on that, because that has a, temp, a possibility to really change the game. Well, so you guys mentioned and we've talked over the years about Major League Baseball experimenting in minor league with these changes before they come in. Yeah. So what have they seen in the experimentation with the two pickoff thing? I mean, that, I agree. That's like who knows what the consequences of that's going to be. Do you know, Eric? I haven't followed it. No, I haven't followed the two pickoff. I followed the shortening of the game. They've seen a slight increase in batting average, um, but I haven't seen whether the change in pickoffs has led to more base stealing or uh, et cetera. They've also experimented with a bunch of other things, which they didn't do. So in our remaining, I don't know how much time we have, uh, Kay, but we have, uh, um, they they experimented with changing the mound height, right? Lowering it raising it, moving it back. I mean, they've done, they've done that stuff before, right? That was the big shift. The biggest shift ever in major league baseball was the mound stuff, right? The mound. Yes. But they haven't moved it. They haven't moved its distance. They, they tried moving it back six inches. Um, and that seems like an, an, a crazy uh, effort. They did not, they didn't do that. They've East. Here's this one. They've also tried robo ups. And that's sure. I mean, that's one, if Shane were here, we'll channel him for us. He's screaming and yelling that he wants to see that immediately. But RoboOps is interesting. That didn't go over well. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it didn't go over well is the actual rule book strike zone might not be what people are used to. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, but why not rewrite the rule book to whatever? Why not just adapt to what people have been using and just that, go with that? that? Right. So it does need to be tweaked. And um, I, my understanding was, I think, is that there are... Um, because the balls can, you just have to grab a portion, any portion of the, the box or the, if you can, if you think about the, the entire, um, you have the square, the, you have the, the home plate and then everything above it uh, within the bounds of the, the knees and the, to the letters. Um, yeah, I, I have to, I don't know why I've thought about this, but if they go to a robo umps, I think we're seeing the revamp of Eddie Goodell. Yeah, exactly. No, I really do. Oh, ho, 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 ho. What does that mean, guys? Uh, Eddie Goodell, was he, I think, was he four feet tall, three foot seven? He was less Where? than that, three six, I think. He was, yes, he was brought so in they as brought a side. In, they brought in people who were really short, Cade, and pitchers have to pitch. If, if you're really going to, no, the umpire's not going to say, hey, you're playing some trick on us. You're bringing in some short player. We're going to call everything a strike anyway. No, if the player's three foot six, that's it. Three foot six, that's your strike zone. He's going to be about a foot long. That's it. That's the strike zone. That was impossible to do for all four. It was, it's really, it was, it was, I think it was Vec, right? Wasn't it Bill Vec? Exactly. Bill Vec. Uh, anyway, the thing is, is that the um, because of the way the strike zone is set up, if the ball just touches the front of the strike zone, it could really end up, that's a very low strike. And, and I don't think batters or pitchers are particularly prepared for it. So who knows? Um, but you're right. You can change the strike zone. So it can be. Well, whole, speak, whole speaking whole. of which, is anybody, is it, is it legislated exactly how big the infield is? Because stadiums vary so much. Couldn't a, couldn't a team cheat and like carve a little deeper infield and let the, their guys can get a little further back that way? That's a great question. I'm pretty sure we know one thing is true. We know the height of the grass, that can all be changed. That's not specific. I think you're right. I actually don't think there it's legislated the size of the, obviously how far it is to each base, that's legislated. But I don't think the size of the infield is legislated. And yet that you could absolutely see that change. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. And someone's going to do it. If it's, if it's, if it's legal, Astros, Astros are going to have this deep infield about halfway to the fence. <laughs> well, here's something I learned uh, is that the team, speaking of the infield, it, it's, uh, we're all talking about infield positioning, but outfielder positioning is one of the most important analytical uh, uh, attention 
points, where do you optimize your positioning of the outfields? I remember Sam Andre Cohen came and once talked to, to Moneyball, and he, he said that he had remind done us, Remind everybody who Sam is. Sam uh, um, was with the, the Nationals, and he was our senior Wharton uh, analytics fellow last year. Um, and uh, he had and he had done an, he was trying to motivate his players to stand in the right spots. Right. And so he was explaining to them that if you had if you had gone on every on every fly ball hit to the or every ball hit to the outfield and you had chosen either the place where the player had had stood or whether the place where the analyst had stood first had told them to stand. So in every play, there's two two numbers uh, positions I should think about. One was where the, the player actually stood and one where the staff told them to stand. They could compute how many extra hits or was yeah. either cost or gained by the by either either side. And and he showed that the that if you had stood where they wanted you to stood, there would have been 30 fewer hits over the course of the season on the team wide level, My which God. is a, which is enormous. And so one of the interesting things that it's interesting and difficult, how do you get your players to actually stand in the right spots? So the teams yeah. are putting little secret little little marks all over the outfield to help their outfielders know where to stand. And of course the opposing outfielders have no idea. They don't know where any of those marks. Well, you can't have little devices that go like beep, 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 you know, that start beeping, you know, like hot, cold, hot, cold. That's an amazing number, Adi, because if you think about it, that's one fifth of a hit roughly per game. I mean, that's, that's a huge number. Yeah. Every five games, it's an extra hit. If you think about it, that's not small. Nope. Nope. It's, it's very hard to someone in the optimal spot, of course. Well, it's 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 people would be surprised how hard it is to get players to do what the team wants them to do or coaches to do what the front office wants them to do. It's not this straight up hierarchical thing like a military. Um, even the military is probably less that way than we think it is. All right, team. That has been another Wharton Moneyball, another four quarters of sports analytics here on Series 6. And thank you for being with us. For the whole team here, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen in absentia. This has been Cade Massey. Thank you to Maddie Dats, the boss man, Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man, and, for, and y'all for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.